From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Hi, this is Casey Kasem. We're up to our long-distance dedication. It's from a man in Cincinnati, Ohio. Dear Casey, this may seem to be a strange dedication request. It was kind of like rooting for a sports team. Luke Dubois. You know, from week to week, I remember like every Sunday, I would tune in to um, Casey Kasem's show, Yeah, American Top 40, and I would I would be like rooting for a band to have moved up in the charts. This is Casey Kasem. You know, I mean, it was kind of bizarre, and I, I, don't know if, I don't know if other people had this experience, but I would guess that... If you're a real, like, kind of aficionado of, like, Top 40 radio, like, I'm sure there were people who were thinking the same thing. They were like, oh, man, I really wish that, like, somebody would knock Whitney Houston out of the top spot. Recently, there was a death in our family. He was a little dog named Snuckles, but he was most certainly a part of... See, when you come out of those up-tempo numbers, man, it's impossible to make those transitions. For us, radio is about storytelling and documentary. But for 99.99% of listeners, the radio is all about one thing, music. Today on ReSound, we're meeting halfway and bringing you stories about music. By the end of the hour, you'll be able to name the most played, stolen, and sampled six seconds of music out there, the artist who did it, and the year it came out. You'll know the story behind the only musical instrument that requires no physical contact whatsoever to produce a sound. And you'll also hear the famous Billboard pop music chart translated into a sonic average, condensed, and then played back. Don't ask. Just listen. Can you give me a couple more reads of that last line? Okay. Okay. Don't ask. Just listen. Don't ask. Just listen. Cool. Our first story for you today has to be one of the most fascinating marriages of music and technology we've heard about. Luc Dubois is a musician and computer programmer who's developed a technique called time-lapse phonography, which works on the same basic principle as time-lapse photography, but it condenses sound over time instead of image. He used the technique on the number one hit songs on the Billboard pop chart from 1958 to 2000, collapsing 42 years into one 37-minute piece of music. You'll hear, it's way cool. So if we take a song, like from 1966, if we take Diana Ross and the Supremes, Keep Me Hanging On. I play it through a computer program I've written. It just looks at the spectrum. It looks at the frequencies and the components and the sound and just averages it over time, much as you would average the stock market or any other thing and then eventually you just end up with this long sustained chord for every week a song is at number one you get one second of sound so if you spend 10 weeks at the top of the charts your song lasts 10 seconds and I string them all together just chronologically You know, I didn't really write, I didn't write this music, and I didn't curate this music. It was curated by, you know, young Americans of the last 50 years who bought records and called into the radio. This was curated by other people, um, millions of other people. I'm just figuring out an algorithm, a way to, a way to sort of present it for people to listen to. 
the piece lasts about 37 minutes, through which you hear from 1958 to 2000. What you do is you get kind of a snapshot of the piece, and you can sing the song over it and tell that it's in the right key. And you can tell things about how the record was produced um, over time. These averages get noisier and noisier because drums, which are basically noise, get louder and louder in record mixing um, since the 50s. The key areas change over time. So in the 50s and 60s, you get a lot of songs still that are in brass keys. They're in keys like B flat and E flat. And by the time you get into the 80s and 90s, almost everything's in the key of C and G and D and A, um, sort of common guitar keys. And some, some really interesting things happen, like in the sort of high disco period, everything stabilizes to the key of D for some reason, all those BG songs. There were a few moments like that where it sort of would level out and something about the sound would really change. Hip-hop tunes becoming number ones. Um, the only real pitched tone becomes things like the bass line. And the rest of it is just this kind of veneer of noise from the rapping and the drums. Um, if you ask someone who was sort of alive and listening to the radio at the time, what would be their most important song, maybe from any given year, what they say and what the chart says probably aren't the same thing. So, so a good one, a good one is 1967, right? The Beatles song, All You Need Is Love, only spent one week at number one. The big hit that year was probably To Sir With Love by Lulu, I would bet, five weeks at number one. Are we going to get to the point in our culture where people have a hard time listening to a two-and-a-half-minute pop song without channel surfing? I see people do this on their iPods all the time. They'll listen to songs only through the first chorus, and then they'll switch to another song. They'll jump around. And I wonder if we're going to get to the point where it's unreasonable to ask somebody's attention for three minutes just listening to music. And then, what do you do? Well, you give it to them in one-second chunks. Number one for 37 minutes. Produced by Trent Wolby for PRI's Studio 360. I'm Gwen Maxi. You're listening to ReSound. Like it or not, if you were sort of a radio listening teenager in America any time in the last, you know, 42 years, 50 years, you have a portion of that chart kind of subliminally memorized. How do all you guys out there? 
This is Porky Channel with, with some of the hit music on Chicago right now. This has been number one for a long time, but it can't be number one on WJK because we only got the 8-track. But if we can have the 8-track for a long time, it'll stay number one. But really, this is number one on WJAK. And now to an instrument that redefines the word. It's not a woodwind, a string, a drum, or anything else you can play with a stick or a bow. You don't shake it, hit it, blow into it, or pluck it. In fact, you don't even touch it. And though it's pretty obscure and very few people play it, you've all heard it. You just don't know you have. Named after its colorful and enigmatic inventor, Russian scientist Lev Sergeyevich Teremin, the theremin is a staple in the soundtrack of every old scary movie you can think of. And despite the fact that it's a relatively new instrument, at least compared to, you know, say the violin, its history is just as rich. Here is the intriguing theremin, produced by Michelle Ernsting. In 1927, he did his demonstration on stage at the Paris Opera. People did not believe what they were seeing. Everybody wanted to see it. Everybody was standing because not everybody could get in there. And a riot broke out. Women fainted in the belief that they were listening to the voices of spirits. Because at that time, you know, seances and mediums and all this sort of thing, very popular uh, with the middle class. And people had never seen it. They'd never seen a speaker before. This was unbelievable. This was crazy. This was bad. This was good. This was revolutionizing uh, the world. This was quite intense. <laughs> the theremin was invented sometime around 1918 by a Russian engineer and scientist and all-around genius by the name of Lev Sergeyevich Termin. Lev Termin, which is anglicized Leon Theremin, he was a radio operator in the First World War, and he apparently at some time or other discovered that when you fiddle around with a radio or even move your hand, you could hear this little sound. You know, just, he knew this was not something the radio was receiving. It was an artifact that the radio was making itself. And he analyzed this and figured out what it was and thought, let's make a musical instrument. Then he started to practice on this instrument and see that part of the repertoire that he knew for cello, he could play that on the theremin. So he got together with a pianist and they started giving a little concert. And in the meantime, he worked on other things. He's one of the three people that in about the same time invented uh, the television in 1926, uh, that in Russia was unfortunately not commercialized, but it was made a secret project by the KGB. And also, around uh, restricted areas, they would place theremin antennas or wires hooked up to a theremin, and if somebody would come near it, it would go, and then they would have an alarm go off. I think the first
first time I heard about it was in 92, when I was studying music therapy. A teacher mentioned it and uh, said that there was a thing that you can wave your hands around a few antennas uh, and that the thing was called a theremin. Uh, I had never heard of it before. Years later, or a few, few years later, when I was studying music uh, technology, someone mentioned it again and I started researching it a little bit, trying to find stuff on the internet. There were a few pages, uh, internet pages then on the, on the internet about the theremin. I uh, was looking for something to express myself with musically and also I was getting interested in computer composition and thought that the theremin could add to that. this remarkable soprano voice singing uh, something that had not been written at all for a soprano it was Saint-Saëns' The Swan and I thought well that's odd who could that possibly be singing like that on an open ah well then about 30-40 seconds later I realized that's not a soprano that's that's something else what could it possibly be? Now, I knew about the theremin, but I thought the theremin was woo, 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 you know, in horror films. I had no idea that the theremin could be played musically and with precision. I thought it was essentially for musical effects, special effects, particularly for horror, suspense, uh, and macabre films of one sort or another. After the, this remarkable rendition of The Swan was finished, Bob Kerr said, That was Clara Rockmore, accompanied by her sister Nadia Reisenberg at the piano, playing on the theremin Saint-Saëns of the Swan. I swore then and there. I got on the internet, found out where to get a theremin. I was going to learn to play this instrument. Period. And I did.
gathered all my money and uh, eventually found a company what was then called Big Briar in America who was uh, selling theremins, Etherwave. And I bought a kit, I put it together and uh, it scared the hell out of me that suddenly there was sound when I turned it on and I turned the amplifier on and it was like it was like, oh my god. And that was amazing. For me, the theremin is this wonderful, marvelous, divine, and heavenly soprano. I was sort of bitten by the opera bug uh, at a, the tender age of eight or nine, I guess. I heard uh, Maria Callas sing, and I mean, you know, just a little kid who's sort of musical. Uh, this is this is a real discovery, and uh, I don't think I ever actually got over it. Quite a number of years later, here I am, and I'm playing the theremin. I, I realized very quickly that I was committed to learning this instrument. I really loved it. I got a lot of satisfaction because it allowed me suddenly to be able to play this marvelous repertoire, a vocal repertoire that I'd always loved, but I could never play it. And I certainly couldn't sing it, uh, so I just had to enjoy it as a listener. But now, all of a sudden, I could actually do it and do it on the theremin and do it, you know, with a, at a level that would give me some personal satisfaction, my neighbors notwithstanding. Essentially, the instrument's theory boils down to this. It is a heterodynamic instrument. You do not touch it when you play it. It has two antennas, known as the ring and the rod. The ring is on the left, and it is proximity of your left hand to this ring that controls the volume. You never touch it. You just bring your hand close to this antenna, and you get silence. Move it away, and you get loud. Pitch. Pitch is controlled by proximity of the right hand to the vertical antenna. The vertical antenna is about oh, 18 to 20 inches from the thereminist, whose hand dances in this space in between his or her own body and the vertical antenna. So you jump around and you do this little dance and with if you can control volume and pitch, you can make music. One of the highlights in Theremin's personal life, as he put it himself, was that he was invited to demonstrate his instrument for Lenin. He admired this man incredibly. Uh, and a demonstration was arranged at the Kremlin. Uh, Lenin loved the theremin. And that was probably the best thing that could happen to the theremin. He invited Lenin to play and Lenin stood in front of the instrument and Leon uh, stood behind him, held his hands around him 
and moved his hands for him to play a piece called uh, Skylark by the composer Glinka, which, as far as I know, was the favorite uh, composer of Lenin. And then at one point, halfway through the piece, Leon Termin let go of the hands of Lenin and Lenin finished the piece himself. Thurman himself, this was the proof that any, anybody can play this instrument. This is the thing. Uh, lo look what, what happens here. But also, Lenin loved it so much, he said, this is the proof that electricity is good for the people. Because socialism and electricity makes communism. And this was proving his point of how good communism was. Lenin was absolutely enthralled with it and thought to himself, because there's always an ulterior motive here, he thought, this is a very interesting thing. You know, people are going to be impressed with this. And this young man, you know, he looked great and sounded great and he was brilliant and all the rest of it. He could be a wonderful mouthpiece for something that Lenin thought very, very important, electrification. So he sent, at state expense, he sent Leon Theremin to Western Europe, to Paris and uh, to Germany. Uh, he played in um, Frankfurt and he did a number of presentations. In a way, he was a Russian ambassador to the world. He was going to talk about electrification and, and, and show the wonderful things that the Russians were doing. And he did. And uh, people were just amazed. And he went to the United States and introduced it to the U.S., and that's how RCA got involved. In December 1928, Leon Thurman went to America and he stayed there until 1938-39. He lived and worked in uh, New York City. In the beginning he did, of course, a lot of uh, demonstrations there. He was one of the exciting events for Jet Set because everybody was like, if they paid a lot of money they could see Thurman play. So he, he met all the important people from that time, Einstein and, and a lot of uh, other people. Clara Rockmore, who was, without any question, the great theremin virtuoso of all time, she was an accomplished violinist, and there was a problem with the structure of the bones or tendons in her bowing arm. In any case, poor Clara was unable to pursue a career as a professional violinist. She was introduced to Leon Theremin, I believe at the Plaza Hotel. Clara would have been about 18. She was young really young. Uh, in any case, she said later, she said, uh, he saved my artistic life. With her Russian accent, she said this. 
Uh, and of course, the rest is history. She, she took up the theremin. She never played the violin again. She basically became the great thereminist. began to get involved with the theremin community, I ended up actually purchasing the great, uh, marvelous 1929 theremin that had belonged to the theremin virtuoso, uh, the late Dr. Samuel Hoffman. Everyone has heard him play the theremin, even if they don't know it. It's a great treasure. The Smithsonian Institution in Washington is dying to get their hands on it. Because, basically, as a theremin, of course, a vintage theremin, it has a value. But as a Hollywood monument, it's priceless. Because here it is. I mean, it is the most identifiable musical instrument in the world. When you hear any of the soundtracks to those old 1940s, 1950s films and you hear that is Dr. Samuel Hoffman's theremin. We don't know whose piano it was or who played the harp or any of the rest of it, but we know that uh, because it is so distinctive. He was the only one playing at that time in Los Angeles. I was thrilled when the family decided to allow me to buy the theremin. And a strange thing happened. I had uh, approached the family through a wonderful thereminist who I know in Los Angeles. Uh, we all know one another. He's a man by the name of Charlie Lester. And uh, Charlie had kind of, he'd, he'd been the kind of go-between between the Hoffman family and me. And uh, I had proposed buying the instrument, and they, no, 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 they weren't interested at all. Uh, and subsequently, they got back to me, the Hoffman family got back to me and said, we have decided to allow you to buy this instrument because we think our late father wants you to have it. I never did understand, this is the theremin we're talking about. Uh, never did understand why they said that, but um, the theremin is a mysterious instrument. It's very strange. There's a lot of strangeness associated with it. I mean, this is the only instrument 
that has an aura. Think about it. It has an aura, and you play this instrument by going into its aura. It's almost like a sort of a living thing with a force field around it. You know, it's, it's, and there's a lot of weird stuff with the theremin. And when you're intimately involved with theremins, you begin to strange things happen that you just can't believe. Theremin was a mystery to the people who knew him in the 1930s. We now know a good deal about him. And as it turns out, indeed, Theremin was in the employ of the KGB. Now, my feeling here is that Theremin himself, uh, well, we know he was financed by the Russian government to come to the West. We know that. That, that was never even a secret. So what, are they, what did they think that he was going to do here? So, uh, you know, we have a very different perspective on it now. Um, I am convinced that if Leon Theremin had been left to his own devices, I, I don't think he was interested in politics at all. He was interested in his inventions. In 1938, 39, he went back to Russia. Nobody exactly knows why or how. Anyway, he went back to Russia, found that many people were dead, people that he knew, scientists, people he worked with, friends, they were dead or were sent to a gulag, to a work camp in Siberia or so. He was arrested, uh, also sent to gulag, where he spent one year. He basically survived in this prison camp because he was quite small of posture, he was not a big man, and because everybody got a little bit of food, small people could live of that. His mind continued to work, he invented a system, or sort of a rail system, so wheelbarrows could be pushed along much faster. Then, I think it must have been in the 40s that Leon Theremin was taken out of the work camp and put in a, a secret laboratory where he had to uh, work for a government, a secret service. And he invented some pretty uh, nifty uh, devices that, uh, for which he eventually got the first-class Stalin Prize of Honor. Which is funny because he, then one point he is one of the heroes of the country, next point he's in, in prison, lucky not to be killed by the government, and then later he gets a prize again. The theremin has some very serious limitations. It can't do certain things. It's, it's not good with fast staccato notes. Uh, it, it sounds like an on-off machine. It, it sounds like the, the Roadrunner. Remember? Meep, meep. No. It's much better when it is being played with what Clara Rockmore used to refer to as the infinite bow, these sort of long, wonderful bel canto-type uh, phrases. Musically, there are basically, I think, two kinds of thereminist. There are thereminists who play what we call free music, that is music that is unencumbered by a, a score that has to be reproduced accurately. It could be anything. And that's great. It's wonderful. It's very expressive and done uh, with taste and done artistically by somebody who knows what they're doing. It can be quite very exciting. It's a lot easier to do that than it is to play the other kind of theremin, which is precision theremin. That requires a level of accuracy on the instrument that not everybody wants to take the time to acquire. It takes a long time. Ah, 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 ah. 
With theremin, each little movement that you make has an influence on what you hear. So you have to maintain this energy within yourself and do something with it within yourself. My muscles are very tense when playing the theremin, even though I'm not holding to anything. But I, to, to be able to control the tone, I have to, to grab the note in, in a way. I'm very tired after playing and, and have painful arms. Also this tension is, I think also, if you sing very intensively, then I, I think the effects on the, on the body and on the, the way you get tired are the same. But I've also tried to get away from that and see the theremin as a theremin. Theremin, he was convinced throughout his life that he could build a device that would bring back uh, living from the dead. When uh, Lenin died, he um, said, freeze him, please freeze him because I know I can build a device. And he, he, he was absolutely certain that he could do that. Three, four years ago, I was in uh, the United States visiting uh, Charles Armour Kenyon, an American uh, producer and composer who met Theremin, in, I think in 91 or 89. Uh, at one point, Charles asked, well, how are you uh, doing, Mr. Theremin? Theremin responded with, ah, oh, good, I have now worked out how I can build my device to bring people back to life. But I don't have the funds, if I can find the funds. And he was 96 years old or so here, or 93 years old. He was still thinking, he was a thinker and an engineer, he, he built stuff. He was a fascinating man, and I'm very, very uh, sad sometimes that, well, okay, you can't turn stuff around, but uh, I wish if, if he, he would have made his device, then, uh, then I would have been happy to have a chance to talk to this guy. My uh, impression of him, th this is really intuitive more than anything else, we don't know. I mean, he was a man of enormous charm and huge intellect, uh, and... My sense is, left to his own devices, he would have come up with the synthesizer keyboard and, well, he'd already had. Uh, if the war had not intervened, and poor Theremin, uh, I think they were trying to force him to do things he didn't want to do. I don't think he wanted to use his brilliant mind for military inventions. He, he was an artist in his own way, but he was a very complex man. And uh, left to his own devices, I think he would have made huge contributions to the world of electronic music. But we had to wait another generation for that. He was a, a worker, a thinker, and a, a, a developer. Uh, and he did leave us a, a, a great instrument and many ideas before people were ready to experiment with musical sounds. He built an instrument that enabled them to do that. But the world was not ready, I think. Now they are. Its day isn't going to come. It's too hard to play. It's that simple. I think it is going to remain with us. It's not going to go away. But it is never going to be what the originators, you know, the first RCA uh, manufacturers wanted it to be. It, it can't be. It's too hard. In 1930, when uh, RCA first released the theremin, 
the slogan, the motto that was supposed to inspire people to buy the thing was, if you can hum or whistle a tune, you can play the theremin. This was a lie. It just simply was not true. And that is one of the reasons why what RCA had hoped would happen never happened. They actually believed that the theremin was going to replace the piano in the parlor in every American home. I do believe the theremin will remain because it is unique. It is unique and it has a kind of a magical hold over certain people, like me, uh, and others. And it, will, and it will always have this. Audiences are just fascinated with it. It is an instrument that's not going to go away. And nothing can emulate it. It can emulate, but nothing can emulate it. The Intriguing Theremin, produced by Michelle Ernsting for Radio Netherlands. Let me ask you, where else can you hear a story from Radio Netherlands outside of the Netherlands? How else can you visit a sound installation in California without leaving Chicago? Only here on ReSound. So do us a favor. Let us know what you think of the work, the show, the Dan Ryan, whatever. Our email address is resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to say welcome now to the sound and soul. And we're going to have some really groovy songs tonight. So hang in there. Hi, people out there in WJK land. I know you're all listening to this radio because it's the far out of radio in the world. This is making our super jack calendar. And I hope you like the music in the background. It's from WJAK. Ever since sampling came into existence, taking a previously recorded song and reproducing part of it to create a new song, a lot of new music can be dissected to reveal old musical elements. And sampling brings up a lot of fascinating issues, ownership of culture, and the nature of art and creativity. Sound artist Nate Harrison traced one of the most sampled drum beats in the history of recorded music back to its origin for a sound installation he created for the California Institute of the Arts. It's called Can I Get an Amen? This is Nate Harrison, recording in winter of 2004. I'd like to talk about drums, or rather, about a particular drum beat. I'm sure you've heard it dozens of times before. It's a ubiquitous piece of the pop culture soundscape. It's been used as a rhythmic backdrop in everything from late 80s gangster rap to corporate America's recycling hip-hop forms to sell things like Jeeps and blue jeans to suburban America. In fact, just last week, I saw a TV commercial for a pharmaceutical company where this drumbeat was used to promote some sort of purple pill. It's been used so much, I might argue it's now entered into the collective audio unconscious and did so about three or four years ago. It's been somewhat glossed over now, but it has quite a history to it. This particular drumbeat, or rather this breakbeat, as it is more accurately called, or even more simply just break, well, this particular break is called the Amen, the Amen break. Here's what it sounds like. Here, I'll play it again.
Now this break, despite its popularity and use over the last decade or so in contemporary culture, dates back almost 40 years. The Amen Break is a small piece of, and gets its name from, a song released in 1969 titled Amen Brother. Amen Brother was recorded by a funk and soul band who called themselves the Winstons. Amen Brother is the B-side of a single released by the Winstons titled Color Him Father. Color Him Father went on to win a Grammy Award for the band, becoming one of the top 100 hits of 1969. It's probably the track for which the band is best known. However, it's the B-side, Amen Brother, that has that classic drum breakdown right in the middle of the song, which makes it perfect for sampling. Here it is again, with more of the rest of the track included to give it context. So, Amen Brother was recorded, it was released, it was played, it came and went. Nothing terribly remarkable about it. However, the drum loop in the middle of the song was resuscitated with the advent of the sampler in the 1980s. Just a brief aside about the sampler, this was a machine about the size of a VCR that allowed its user to record any sound into it for quick playback and arrangement. The sampler, as well as the turntable, were principal tools largely responsible for the birth and development of hip-hop. With a sampler, any drum beat, any guitar riff, any sound that could be recorded could be used as part of a new composition, a new contextualization. Nowadays, almost all commercially produced music has been at least in part realized with a sampler. But hip-hop and other electronic-based music genres pioneered the creative use of samplers, and the Amen Break was one of the first drum samples to be experimented with. Here's an early example, the track Words of Wisdom by New York duo Third Bass. Released in 1989. And here's another example NWA's track Straight Out of Compton, also from 1989. Finally, here is Mantronics with King of the Beats from 1990. In these cases, a one-bar loop of the Amen was used to create the rhythms. That is to say, it's a fairly straightforward use of the break. As time went on and samplers became more complex, so did their usage. In the UK, right around the time Straight Outta Compton is released, the rave scene there explodes, with musicians and DJs who used samplers and the Amen break to produce hardcore techno, raga jungle, and drum and bass. Jungle in particular, it being an amalgamation of reggae toasting, heavy bass lines, and high-speed breakbeats, centers its aesthetic almost entirely around the deconstruction of the Amen. This was done by slicing the original six-second sample into its individual drum hits. Each snare drum, each bass drum, the hi-hats, the crash cymbal. (laughs) 
The slices could then be rearranged and manipulated in any number of ways to create new patterns. Here's an earlier jungle artist. This is Shy FX's track, Original Nata, from 1994. And here's another by L Double and Younghead, titled New Style, from 1996. Amen tracks like these were plentiful and easily disseminated to their audiences via acetate test pressings, or dub plates as they are called. These one-off recordings, unlike mass-produced vinyl records that typically had to be pressed in quantities of 1,000 or more, were, and still are, cheap to make and could be cut quickly. A musician could make an Amen track in the morning, get a dub plate cut that afternoon, and have a DJ play it to a crowd that night. Dub plates don't last very long, however and can only be played about 50 times before they wear out. The recording you are listening to now is an example of a dub plate. In any event, with Jungle's popularity, what you got in reaction was this sort of chin-stroking art crowd who took the Amen as their own in the name of a sort of, as some might say, a highbrow posturing. They proceeded to push the levels of absurdity with its use, really tweaking the arrangements beyond a point of danceability and syncopation, and into a realm of pure fetishization and self-indulgence. Here's the UK's Tom Jenkinson, aka Square Pusher, with the track Vic Acid from 1997. And the US's Keith Whitman, aka Havratsky, with his track, Routine Exercise, from 1998. And now, just to fast forward a bit, if you tune in to the internet radio station www.ragajungle.com, you'll be massaged by endless permutations of the Amen break, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Despite Jungle and Drum and Bass being over 10 years old now, they still have their hardcore fans, even if they base their devotion partly on the nostalgia of the early UK scene. I find this quite interesting. Hundreds of tracks, dozens of DJs, a number of clubs and events, in effect an entire subculture, based on this one drum loop. I mean based on six seconds from 1969. What is it about the Amen break? What's the fascination? Is it the punch of the snare drum? Or maybe the overall groove of the loop? Obviously, it seems to have infected a great many musicians. Here's one more example, and a kind of odd one at that. Perry Farrell, as some know as the frontman for Jane's Addiction and Porno for Pyros, making some kind of hybrid rock jungle cover of Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love.
The original Whole Lotta Love, ironically enough, was released by Led Zeppelin in 1969, the same year Amen Brother was released. Indeed, the Amen Break appears quite adaptable to a range of music genres and tastes. So perhaps an important question is, where are the Winstons during all this? Sample-based music both in the U.S. and abroad mushroomed during the 1990s. Were they around to witness the transformation of their breakbeat from a baby boomer solo groove into a staple for underground electronic music? Did any of the members of the band care about its blatant appropriation, seemingly without consent, by musicians in rave and hip-hop? Perhaps Richard Spencer, a founding member of the Winstons and the copyright holder of Amen Brother, and who interestingly enough left the music biz and later received a PhD in political science, simply didn't care. Perhaps he, like many people during hip-hop's early years, didn't see it and other sample-based music as having any potential beyond a limited underground appeal. During the 80s, when DJs plundered old jazz and R&B records looking for samples, hip-hop in particular and electronic music in general were not the pop phenomena and moneymakers we know them as today. There seemed to be a brief few sort of glory years back then, when the novelty of sampling and the rate at which it was being employed as a new technique grew faster than the rate at which any sort of copyright bureaucracy could maintain the law. Older bits of sampling were appropriated, perhaps under the assumption of their being able to be freely used, in the spirit of a pledge to new forms. In other words, sampling was not seen as merely rehashing past sounds, but as an attempt to make new from something old an artistic strategy as time-honored as creative expression itself. Only when these urban forms began receiving a lot of attention and making a lot of money did people, and more importantly, corporate bigwigs who held the copyrights to much of the back catalog of contemporary American music, start cracking down on copyright violation. Remarkably, though, the Winstons, who, by the way, do still exist today, although in name only as none of the original members play in the band any longer, never pursued legal action against those hundreds of instances of the Amen Break's appropriation over the last 20 years. It seemed the Amen, by the sheer amount of its use by producers and DJs around the world, had entered into a type of public domain, if not legally, then certainly culturally. At any rate, during Jungle's transformation from an underground club status to a more user-friendly electronica, as the media likes to call it, a curious chain of events happened. Advertising agencies, always looking for new angles to help peddle consumer products by tapping into what the kids on the margins are listening to these days, started using breakbeats, including the Amen, in television commercials. For example, here's a Jeep ad running in Southern California right now, promoting their extreme Jeep snow event. Nothing handles the winter elements like a Jeep 4x4, except, of course, you. Now, during the Extreme Jeep Snow event, visit your Jeep dealer and get a lift pass to Sugar Bowl, Bear Mountain, or Snow Summit. You'll also get a chance to win a legendary Grand Cherokee. And now, California buyers get zero plus on Grand Cherokee. Now, noticing a rise in popularity in breakbeat music and recognizing a growing market of commercial producers wishing to use the Amen break, third-party companies started selling it through what seemed to be completely legal channels. For example, at the end of the 1990s, a UK company by the name of Zero G Limited started selling jungle construction kits, sample CDs containing hundreds of breakbeats, including the Amen. Here is their version of it from their Jungle Warfare sample CD 
which, by the way, is copyrighted 2002 by Zero-G. And here is the original Amen break again, taken from the actual Winston's vinyl release I bought off eBay, copyrighted 1969. I sped the break up slightly to match a jungle tempo. I don't think it's much of a stretch to conclude that Zero-G appropriated the Amen, although according to their packaging they guarantee that all samples in the construction kit have been created specially for it. Likewise, nowhere in their literature does it mention any licensing of the Amen from the Winstons. So, here we have two copyrights of the same material. How can this be? Furthermore, while I can use Zero-G's version of the Amen to make and sell music, I don't own the Amen sample I bought from them. I only own a license from them to use it. I cannot take their Amen and make and sell my own sample CD kit. Thus, in some ways, the Amen belongs less now to the Winstons and more to companies like Zero-G Limited. Why do I bring any of this up? What is significant about the Amen break? I'm talking about it here because I think its story is a good example illustrating the rise and subsequent problematic of digital sampling in relation to today's increasingly stringent copyright and trademark laws. To trace the history of the Amen break is to trace the history of a brief period of time when it seemed digital tools offered a potentially unlimited amount of new forms of expression, where cultural production, at least musically, was full of possibilities by virtue of being able to freely appropriate from the musical past, to make new combinations and thus new meanings. The story demonstrates that a society, quote, free to borrow and build upon the past, is culturally richer than a controlled one, unquote. To use the words of Lawrence Lessig, Stanford Law Professor, Copyright Reform Advocate, and Co-Founder of Creative Commons, an organization offering a legal alternative to copyright control. As we go forward, examples like the Amen break will become more and more rare, if non-existent. A Sixth Circuit Federal Appeals Court ruled in September of this year that recording artists must pay for every sample they use not in the public domain, regardless of the length or recognizability of the samples in question. But because of various changes to U.S. copyright laws, for example the Copyright Act of 1976 and the Sonny Bono Copyright Extension Act of 1998, which extend copyrights into the mid-21st century, virtually all 20th century cultural output has been locked away from the public domain, barred from sampling, unless one has deep pockets and expensive lawyers. So it seems a company like Zero-G with its attempt at regulating the use of, and profiting from, the use of the Amen break, is helping to secure the supremacy of copyright laws, while the company's very success itself occurred because of a lack of strict copyright control surrounding breakbeat sampling. In other words, not only does the innovation within culture grow when copyright is flexible, so do its markets and capital. New trends are developed, new sounds are sought after. New releases are anticipated and become hugely popular, perhaps even selling out. New stars are born and new fan bases are created. Money is exchanged, all in the pursuit of new forms and experiences, of potentials for new connections and meanings. I think the history of the use of the Amen break demonstrates this. To cite Federal Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals Judge Alex Kaczynski in a copyright ruling last year, quote, Overprotecting intellectual property is as harmful as underprotecting it. 
culture is impossible without a rich public domain. Nothing today, like nothing since we tamed fire, is genuinely new. Culture, like science and technology, grows by accretion, each new creator building on the works of those who came before. Overprotection stifles the very creative forces it's supposed to nurture. Unquote. End of recording. Can I Get an Amen? Produced by Nate Harrison for a sound installation he created for the California Institute of the Arts. A link to the video of the sound installation is available on our website. Just go to the resound page at thirdcoastfestival.org. I'm Gwen Maxi. You're listening to Resound. The words of Professor Lawrence Lessig become from a tradition of free culture, free as in free speech, free markets, free trade, free enterprise, free will, and free life. A free culture supports and protects creators and innovators. It does this directly by granting intellectual property rights. It does so indirectly by limiting the reach of those rights to guarantee that follow-on creators and innovators remain as free as possible from the control of the past. A free culture is not a culture without property, just as a free market is not a market in which everything is free. It's free as possible from the control of the past. The opposite of a free culture is a permission culture, a culture in which creators get to create only with the permission of the powerful or of creators from the past. Resound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. The program is hosted by Gwen Maxi, produced by Delaney Hall, and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. The Third Coast Festival is also supported by Stephen Gross of Real Life Weddings. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.